to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today, I'm speaking with Tobias Kromberg, who is a professor and consultant in neurology at Lund University in Sweden. He's a senior investigator on the Targeted Temperature Management 2 trial and also has a special interest in cardiac arrest-induced brain injury. Welcome to the show again, Tobias, and how are you today? Thank you very much, Paul. I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. On the previous episode of the podcast, we talked about the temperature management side of things or cooling. And also I've spoken with Dr. Keeble previously about things that occur in a cath lab, things that can be done to improve a patient's chances of survival. But today I'd like to talk about one of your specializations, which is prognostication, which, as I understand it, is essentially predicting the future. And as we all know from what's happened this year, we're not very good at it, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Could you just explain what prognostication is? Yes. When it comes to cardiac arrest, when we are talking about prognostication, we are talking about those patients who who remain in coma, who don't wake up after the cardiac arrest, but are in coma in the intensive care unit, and where we are trying to predict what their future outcome would be, whether they will eventually wake up and have a good outcome or whether their chances of waking up are very, very small and the chances of a poor outcome, a very severe brain injury or death by brain injury are very large. So that's what we are trying to prognosticate, the chances of really the chances of a good outcome. When patients or families see their loved one go through a cardiac arrest and then get resuscitated, they they may think that once a a patient has got a ROSC or their their heartbeat has come back and they're they're essentially alive again, that they think they're possibly going to be okay. But from sort of talking to various people, I I know that even if you get to the hospital alive, there still is only a 50-50 chance that you actually come out alive. I don't know if that's true in in Sweden as well, but I guess there's a lot of other factors that go into to making someone survive, getting to the hospital alive, and also what goes on in the hospital. And I'd just like to sort of think things that a lay person can see and, and will experience maybe at the scene or have been told by a third party. Can we use those to sort of determine how well someone will do? Like if we saw them collapse or how soon the CPR was done, how good and how long? You know, are, are they good predictors of how well a patient would do? Because I quite often see people say, you know, I, I was down for five minutes or 10 minutes and then someone else will comment saying I was also down for this time. Are they good comparators? Can we say that two people with the same downtime Will they do the same? No, we can't say that. Those circumstances around the cardiac arrest, whether it was witnessed or not, whether somebody started CPR immediately or not, and the downtime, those are very important on a group level. But for the individual patients, they are too imprecise to be used for prognostication. So we would frequently see the exceptions. A person with a reasonably short reported downtime 
who have a very severe brain injury and a person with a long downtime who has a very small brain injury or, or no brain injury at all. And that depends partly on on the fact that, that these reports are, are not very reliable. And I mean, at the cardiac arrest, it's, it's chaos. It's a lot of people acting uh, in a hurry, and we won't have very precise estimates of timing. And also, the quality of CPR may differ a lot from one situation to the other. So for when I am assessing a patient in the ICU and trying to estimate the amount of brain injury, I would, of course, look at those circumstances, but I wouldn't use them for any strong advice or decisions around the patient, only to see whether it reasonably fits uh, with the other things I use for diagnosis of, of brain injury. And I just wanted to say one thing that you were, were talking about in, in the beginning, Paul. You said that people may think that be, just because you resuscitated, everything will be fine. Uh, and it's not, it's not like that. We know that. Um, and, and as you say, approximately 50% of the patients who come to the ICU and who are resuscitated will eventually survive. And the other half uh, will, will die or have a very poor outcome, at least. Uh, and the reason for that is that the brain is much more sensitive to loss of blood flow than the heart is. So the heart may do reasonably well and be restarted while the brain has uh, suffered irreparable damage during that same time period. And that's the main reason why so many resuscitated patients eventually die. What percentage of patients will sustain a brain injury after a, a period of uh, cardiac arrest? And how long does that period have to be to sustain that injury? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer. And nobody has the, the correct answer, actually, because it depends on how you would classify brain injury. What we know is that among the patients who come to the ICU, 50%, roughly 50%, uh, will survive and 50% will die if you look at comparable countries like the UK and Sweden. That's the rough estimates. And those that die, the majority of those deaths are because of brain injury. So most of the patients dying, they will die due to the brain injury. But then if you look at the survivors and you start doing uh, more sophisticated tests of the survivors, you will find that 50% of the survivors have cognitive problems, problems with their memory or, or their executive functioning, their, their ability to plan and, and perform different activities, etc. And is that because of brain injury? Well, we are not really certain about that. We only know that they have a lot of problems, but it could also be to, due to other things, such as uh, having hypertension before the cardiac arrest. Before, because if you look at comparable patients who, who have a myocardial infarction but no cardiac arrest, they will also have cognitive problems in a similar frequency. So how common is some degree of brain injury after cardiac arrest? We, we really can't tell at the moment if, you, if you're looking at the whole spectra. Severe brain injury occurs in, in uh, between 30 and 50% of the patients who come to the ICU. It's quite a lot really, isn't it? 
yeah, it's a lot. Okay, so if someone makes it to the uh, ICU or to the hospital, what do the European Resuscitation Council guidelines say that should be done to prognosticate this person and who's doing those things? So we have uh, quite extensive guidelines on this. And the first thing that they state is what should not be done. We should not do too early prognostication. We should not make any decisions around the prognosis during the first three days. That's one very important thing. The only exception is if there are strong ethical reasons or, or if, if the patient becomes brain dead, because that's something different. But otherwise, in the, in the more standard case, we should not try to estimate the prognosis before at least three days has passed. And that's because we need to give the patients a chance just to wake up once we have stopped sedation. Just wait and see what happens with the patient. But during those first three days, we should collect information around the extent of brain injury. And for that, we use different methods. And it uh, differs between hospitals which methods would be preferred at, at uh, any hospital. And who, who would be doing those tests? Is it Would you need specialists like yourself or would they be done by, I mean, typically someone's going to be taken into a, a cardiac type uh, environment. Would it be done by a cardiologist or do you need a neurologist or, or some other specialist to do those tests? At some hospitals, it would be a cardiac intensivist or a, a neurointensivist or a general intensivist. At other hospitals, it would be a consulting neurologist like myself doing the tests. It depends from hospital to hospital. The only thing that's really important is that it's a person who is trained to do these tests. But uh, the clinical examination of the patient is not difficult to perform. It's something that every doctor could perform. And so what are these tests that would be done then? And you said that you wouldn't prognosticate to after three days, but presumably you'll be doing these tests before then. Correctly. So, so we, would, we would examine the patient on a daily basis, even when the patient is uh, sedated and artificially ventilated in a ventilator. We would be examining the patient looking at what we call the cranial nerve functions, And the cranial nerves are the nerves regulating, for example, your pupillary response and and your breathing pattern and whether you can cough or not cough when you are pulling in in the tube that you have in your throat. Those kinds of very, very primitive responses and also testing the level of coma. And we would do that by stimulating the patient's even doing pain response to see whether the alertness of the patient, how deep is the coma, how alert is the patient. It wouldn't be meaningful to test alertness when the patient is deeply sedated, of course, but we would test those uh, cranial nerve responses anyway, and that would give us some information. What is the difference between, if there is one, being sedated in a coma and just being naturally in a coma? 
Yeah, the difference is that anybody with a very healthy brain as well could be could be in coma if you give them sedatives, and and they appear just just the same as somebody being in a coma from brain injury. But when we examine these cranial nerve responses, we could see other things in a patient with brain injury, with a severe brain injury, that is, such as the pupillary responses being uh, uh, extinguished uh, or the axis of the eyes uh, pointing in different directions, telling us that, that there probably is a structural damage uh, in the brain stem. What things would families and partners see you doing while you're, if they were in the room while you're conducting some of these tests? I mean, I've seen doctors where they shine a torch in the eyes, but I'm sure it's moved on from just shining a torch in the eyes. But and and pinching people is is that the sort of things that you'd do? Yeah, that's that's actually the sort of things that we do. But I always start by looking at the patient to look at at whether the patient has any involuntary movements. Because if they have twitching um, or shaking, it could be a a sign of myoclonus, which is a severe sign, unfortunately. And so that's a a sign of a poor or worse prognosis. You may survive anyhow. Some patients do, but most patients with myoclonus will not uh, survive because they have such a severe brain injury. That would be the first thing that I, I do. And then I would be checking the ventilator to see whether they are triggering the ventilator themselves and starting the breathing themselves and just just being helped by the ventilator or whether the ventilator is doing all of the job. Then I would move on to talking to the patients just to checking whether there is a response. I would talk to the patient when the patient is lying there with the eyelids closed and I would after that open the eyelids and talk to the patient to see whether they can somehow orient towards me, somehow doing something on command. And that is a patient, of course, that's not uh, deeply sedated. I would ask them to open and close their eyes, look at me, look to the other side, etc. Maybe move a hand or, or something like that. And sometimes they respond, but if they are unconscious, of course, there would be no response. And uh, then I would do these things that you say, shining a torch in the eye, touching the cornea of the eye to see whether they blink, if they have a blink response. I would pull in the in the ventilated tube to see whether they cough. Uh, and I would suction down into the throat to see whether they have a response to that. Those are reflex responses. I would move the limbs of the patient to see if they are relaxed or if they have an increased tonus of their muscles, which also is a sign of of injury. And I would test their stretch response, their stretch reflexes uh, in the limbs with my little hammer. I would also see if they have this plantar response where you pull a a stick under the foot to see whether your big toe is pointing upwards or downwards, where an upward response is is something bad and a downward response is the natural thing. Uh, and then I would move on to the painful stimuli to see whether I can arouse the patient uh, by pressing. I would press on the mandibular joint and, and I could also rub on the sternum 
with my hand. Those are uncomfortable things. So if I if I would do it on you when you are awake, you would probably say I, and and you would uh, think that it's oh that was uncomfortable. And for somebody in coma, they may be aroused by that, and they may be aroused to different levels, and that would be quite predictive. If they suddenly take their hands up to to my hand and try to push it away, it's a very, very good sign if I could elicit that kind of response. And I understand that there's some uh, scales that you might measure people against, the the Glasgow Coma Scale and the full outline of unresponsiveness scale. Could you just tell me about those a little bit? Those are, are scales that incorporate these different things that I was talking about. The response of the patient, the response to, to verbal stimuli, if you talk about the Glasgow Coma Scale, and also the response to painful stimuli. And in the, fo- the four score is slightly more advanced than the Glasgow Coma Scale. So it's getting more and more popular these days, the four score, because it's it also has this pupillary response and corneal response, and it takes into account whether the patient breathes against the ventilator or not. And it doesn't have any verbal response in the scale, which the Glasgow Coma Scale has, because these patients are intubated, so they can't speak. And that's a development in the four score. I'm guessing that these are sort of just general for anyone in a, a coma. Are there anything particular to cardiac arrest survivors that these scales either do or don't uh, allow for? No, I wouldn't say so. What is particularly important in cardiac arrest is the pupillary responses and the corneal responses, because those are the most robust uh, reflexes. If you don't have any pupillary responses, uh, for instance, at, at 72 hours after your cardiac arrest, and you're not affected by sedation, then your chances of survival is very bad. So th- that's one of the most evaluated reflexes that we have. The corneal reflexes are similar. Uh, and then we have the response to painful stimuli, which has been very much investigated and very much used so if you don't have any response or if you have if you just stretch your limbs as a, as a general reflex when when you do this stimuli the whole body stretches out then that's also a very bad sign but it's not as reliable as the pupillary response it used to be a central part of the examination and people uh, tended to withdraw intensive care for patients who didn't have any any motoric response to pain. But that's not the case today because it's not reliable enough. We need need other investigations and other signs of brain injury to make any decisions. I've got two sort of questions coming off from that, which would be a lot of these tests are done while a patient is in a coma. What happens if a patient comes to you and they possibly aren't put into an induced coma or they're sort of in and out of consciousness, would you do any tests on them? And what about patients that perhaps don't even go to ICU? Yeah, 
They, there could be two reasons for not two reasons for not going to the ICU. One reason could be that you had a very short cardiac arrest. So, so when when you come to the emergency room, you're already awake, uh, and that's a very good sign. So, for those patients, we normally don't need to do any prognostication. We could only say that this this will be a good outcome when it comes to to brain injury. The other reason for not going to the ICU may be that your prognosis is so so poor, you're in such a bad uh, shape that they wouldn't take you to the ICU. And of course, those patients wouldn't survive for very long. And, and I wouldn't typically see those as, as a neurologist. I wouldn't be much prognostication done. So the typical patient that would do prognostication uh, with is in the ICU. And if the patient wakes up before the time point of more formal prognostication, which we do, as I said, at least three days after the cardiac arrest, and often it's four four days after cardiac arrest, of course, some patients wake up before that, and they still have a pretty advanced brain injury. That may happen. But on the other hand, if the patient wakes up and, and can be extubated, taking the ventilator away, then there's no reason to, to do any advanced prognostication at that time point. Because the reason for prognostication as it is today is mainly to, to be able to make a decision whether to continue intensive care or not. Does the, the time that someone is in a coma or sedated indicate the likelihood of the outcome? Yeah, it does. So we do know that for patients who do not wake up, the chance of awakening will be smaller with each day from the cardiac arrest starting on day three and then moving onwards because until day three for the first two days at least patients will be sedated so you can't you can't uh, estimate for those days but after that they are expected to wake up and if they don't wake up the chances of awakening and good outcome uh, are getting smaller by the day but it does not exclude awakening with a good outcome so we can't just judge from the fact that the patient hasn't awoken. But the chances of ever awakening are getting smaller. But there may be also pharmacological reasons for not waking up, such as the patient may have respiratory problems so that they need a ventilator, and then they will have some sedation to tolerate the ventilator, and then, of course, they won't wake up. Or they may have a lot of epileptic activity in the brain, and we need to give them a lot of anti-epileptic medication, and that may also keep them sedated. You you talked about almost as if there's a a level of confidence in some of the tests. Could you sort of go through what they are? And I understand that you use the test as a whole rather than individually. That's correct. We always, before making a, a statement on prognosis, we'd like to have information from several different sources. So we do the clinical examination of the patient to see uh, how they respond. We do something called EEG or electroencephalography, 
Uh, and that's where you put electrodes on the skull that, that record the electric activity of the brain. And that's very useful to see what kind of, of what level of activity you have in your brain. And if you have a pathological activity, that may be a sign of a severe brain injury. And it has been a lot of research done on the different kinds of EEG patterns after cardiac arrest and the timing of these patterns. So that's one part of, of uh, the calculation or of the whole estimation. That's also the function of the brain, just like the clinical examination. And then we have another electrophysiological examination called somatosensory evoked potentials. And that's an examination where we stimulate a nerve in the handle of the patient, down by the hand. And, and then that signal travels all the way up to the brain, and we can record the signal from the brain similar to the EEG. And if those responses are present, it doesn't tell us very much because they may be present also with a, a severe brain injury. But if they are absent, it's a sign uh, of a very severe injury, and it's a very reliable sign. And then, we, of course, we want to do imaging. So typically, these patients would have a CT scan, computed tomography scan of the brain, like anybody who have a severe head trauma and comes to the hospital, you do a CT scan of the brain. And we'd also do it after cardiac arrest. The problem is that the injury after cardiac arrest is very diffuse. It's in all of the brain, and therefore it may be difficult to detect on, on a usual CT scan. It's better to do an MRI scan. It would give us more information. And in the more complicated case, cases, we would typically do an MRI a bit later. Um, but CT scan is often done early to exclude any bleedings in, in the brain or any traumatic damage. And if you see that the brain is swollen, the whole brain swollen on this CT scan, it's a very bad sign. And then we can also measure in the blood substances, small proteins that comes from the nerve cells and that are released from the brain into the bloodstream. And this, uh, in particular, one substance called neuron-specific enolase. So it's neuron-specific, meaning that it comes from the, from the nervous cells, the neural cells. Uh, and it could be measured at 24, 48, and 72 hours after the cardiac arrest. And if we have a severe brain injury, we would typically have high levels of this neuron-specific enolase. So, so if I see a patient who have a swollen brain on the CT, who have no responses when I examine and perhaps not even any pupillary responses uh, when I, I shine my torch into the eye, who has a very severe pattern on the EEG and who has no responses when we do the stimulation, this SSAP stimulation on the, at, the, at the hand of the patient, then I would be able to conclude that we have a very severe brain injury. And I would be very comfortable concluding that. But in many cases, it won't be that uncomplicated. It would be more complicated saying that the EEG looks bad, 
but on the other hand, the levels of this neuron-specific enolase are not very high, and maybe it was a short time to 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 rosk to to short downtime for the patient. And then we would tend to, we want to delay and we would treat some more. We would perhaps do an MRI to get more information and it would be more more prolonged. There's a couple of things I would like to just go back over. You, you just mentioned MRI, so I'll go back to that one first. Are there any sort of common patterns that you would see with a, um, someone who's had a cardiac arrest in terms of the progression of uh, hypoxia? Would that Does it affect particular parts of the brain? in a, a sequential order or in a common order? No, I, I would say no. There are vulnerable areas. So the whole cortex of the brain is vulnerable. And also a cortical structure called the hippocampus, which is very important for our memory, and which is in the middle of the temporal lobe, it's also very vulnerable. The small brain, the cerebellum, your your small brain, which is in the back part of, of your skull is also very vulnerable to this injury and also some deeper structures uh, called the basal ganglia and in in one patient it may be the cortex that is more effective in another patient it may be the basal ganglia that are more affected and it also depends on the timing of the mri because the damage tends to evolve over days during the first week so it depends if you do it very early it may be more the basal ganglia a bit later you would see more of the cortical damage and you would rarely repeat the mri in one individual patient because doing an mri is quite complicated with a patient who is in a ventilator yes i can imagine that (laughs) and with cooling and all the other paraphernalia exactly and what we what is typical with these patients that we don't see is that we don't see damage in the brain stem so the brain stem which are the the oldest parts of our brain from an evolutionary standpoint they are more resistant to to a brain injury from cardiac arrest and that's that's where the central functions like your brain stem reflexes your respiration and and uh, your alertness is oriented. It's uh, it's within the brainstem. This is very interesting. I'm sure we could go into it for hours about various parts of the brain and how they are affected and what common sequelae that patients experience afterwards, things like m- memory and fatigue. But that wasn't the, the topic of today's podcast. But the other thing... Well, well actually, I, I may interrupt you here, but there is one thing that's central about this because since the brainstem is so resistant uh, to, to cardiac arrest-induced injury, you may very well survive with just your brainstem and not the cortex. And that's what we fear the most. That's what we which was used to be called the vegetative syndrome. And we try to avoid that name now. We call it the the wakeful unresponsiveness syndrome. So you look awake, but you're unresponsive because you don't have any consciousness. So you have a patient without any consciousness who looks awake, who is able to breathe, who open and closes the eyes, may even follow a, a bit with the eyes, but who have no consciousness, 
and is completely dependent on others for support and, and artificial nutrition, of course. If you give nutrition to such a patient, they could survive for many years in a nursing home, and it's a very tragic condition. And it's a common condition in countries where intensive care is always prolonged for cardiac arrest patients. And it's very uncommon in countries like uh, like Britain or Sweden, where we withdraw intensive care if the prognosis is very poor. I mean, that is a whole subject in, it, in its own right, I guess. I mean, I did have one question about the, the timing of EEGs, but perhaps we can come back to the withdrawing of life-sustaining therapies. But just on the, the timing of EEGs, uh, you mentioned that patient or that you do it at certain periods and you can see certain things at certain times. If a patient's in and out of consciousness, if you're doing some of these things at certain times, is there a chance that you could miss someone coming out of uh, their coma or, or do they do EEGs constantly? Yeah, we do We do uh, constant EEG monitoring, but not many centres do that. And you do get some prognostic information just by looking at the evolution of the EEG. But if the patient is going in and out of coma, the staff will notice just from how the patient behaves. Because if you are, if you, if you are becoming awake, you won't tolerate having a tube in your throat. You will start coughing and, and resisting and trying to pull out your tube. If um, we sort of go on to the uh, withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies. But just before that, I'd like to say one question that was suggested to me is about uh, the sort of a whole prognostication thing is why are many families told to expect the worst or given a pessimistic outlook by doctors? You know, are, are we clinicians and society not very good at predicting what's going to happen? So we are on the side of caution or is just the stats say that more people are likely to die than survive? Ah, well, I think the doctors in the ICU around these patients are very used to having bad outcomes. And it is important that the relatives are prepared for that, uh, of course. So, so there is a point in giving early information that it doesn't look really good so that the, the relatives have the possibility to go home and, and prepare themselves. I don't like to have a talk about the prognosis like four days after the cardiac arrest and deliver all the information and also telling that we are discussing to withdraw intensive care because that's the usual situation at that time point to a family that's not prepared at all. And typically, we do collect a lot of information. We have these, as I told you, these blood samples of neuron-specific enolase. We have some, perhaps there's been an early CT showing generalized swelling. Perhaps the patient has myoclonus, this uh, muscle twitching that is an, uh, informs us that there is a poor prognosis. I think Hopefully, the bedside doctors, the ICU doctors, would be more pessimistic in those patients having early signs of poor prognosis than the ones who, who don't have such signs. Mm -hmm. 
And in countries where they don't practice um, withdrawal of life-supporting therapies, what what do they find? What do they see? Do they, do people ever wake up after you know six months, nine months, a year, or longer? Very rarely. Of course, it happens, and and there is an evolution. So patients who from the beginning have this complete uh, unresponsive syndrome may become slightly responsive later on. So they become a little bit better, so to speak, that they may at times have some kind of, of response to their environment, maybe uh, squeeze a hand or open eyes or, or something like that, but they, they don't become able to communicate. There are some rare cases with patients who evolved to become uh, awake and and able to to communicate also so most most patients who after one week has not awoken they will not wake up later on and if you look at the outcome of cardiac arrest in a country like italy or korea where they don't withdraw intensive care because of their tradition you could see that more than half of the survivors of cardiac arrest have a very severe brain injury. And and most of those patients will be in this very, very poor state where they are completely bedridden and at the nursing home, they need somebody else to take care of them all the time. And they have a very, very limited, if any, ability to communicate. Yes, I guess it's a, a very difficult decision to actually make whether someone's life is is how they would want to be like that or whether if they can't communicate unless they've actually previously indicated how they would want to end their life if they're in that situation i imagine it's very difficult deciding that for them whether it's a, a medical decision or a family decision yeah and that differs from country to country what is your legislation and what is your tradition what is the the role of the family in your country or in my country or in another country that differs a lot so in in sweden for instance the doctors and the staff will make the decision and we would make a consensus decision so no physician can make this decision alone it has to be in consensus but we will make the decision and we will inform the relatives but we will also have a discussion with the relatives that where we try to seek some kind of consensus. So we don't like to push if if the relatives resist and say that, well, we don't we are not comfortable with this decision. We tend to wait and we we tend to postpone like twenty-four hours or something like that. But we we make the decision. So we don't put it we feel that we can't put it on the shoulders of the relatives to make this decision. It it, it wouldn't be right. Because in, in reality, it's the patient's decision to make. It's it's nobody else. And, and if the patient can't make a decision, the relatives can't be surrogates to make the decision for, for the patient in Sweden. They don't have that uh, that position. So So we are asking the relatives, what do you think that your husband or wife or grandfather would have wanted in this in this uh, situation what would his or her 
opinion have been typically in Sweden, the relatives would say he would never exist, uh, accept to have a severe brain injury uh, when he awoke. And, and he has been talking about this. So we have been talking about this and they, they wouldn't accept. Does the concept of organ donation come to complicate situation? I mean, in England, I think it's just come in by law that you have to opt out now. Otherwise, you're in the donation program. So does that complicate things? Does it add extra pressure from external sources? Yeah, it does. It hasn't done it in Sweden very much because, as I told you, very few patients become brain dead, what we call neurological dead, dead, when the brain stops functioning. If you're brain dead, then you could be have an organ donation in Sweden and in all other countries as well. But most of the cardiac arrest patients, they will have some function in the brainstem and they won't be brain dead. But now we have this new concept of donation of the circulatory death, which you have in, uh, in, in uh, Britain since a few years back. And that's something different. If the doctors say that you have a severe brain injury and your prognosis is certainly poor, then we can stop intensive care. And if your heart stops, then you could become an organ donor at that situation. And uh, cardiac arrest patients are organ donors in Britain of the circulatory death. And we don't have a lot of reports on how many or how common or how it is uh, done. I couldn't tell you more about it. And I don't have any personal experience, but it's certainly possible. And it does complicate things, of course. Of course, yes. It could be something good, I think. It could, it could. I mean, because if you have a cardiac arrest and, I mean, you become dead and then you're resuscitated back to life and then you're brought to the hospital and then it turns out that you have such a bad brain injury that you can't be saved, then at least it was good for somebody else who, who got the organs and, and who could have a continued life and it could be some comfort for the relatives. We know that from other organ donor situations. When we talked about the calling the other episode, you talked about how the fact that patients who got calling, we don't still know whether it is good or not, but you said it brought a whole host of extra benefits to cardiac arrest patients in that they came to the ICU, had a lot more treatments and they were looked at perhaps a little more closely. Could that be the same in this situation that if we do routinely uh, use patients who have had a cardiac arrest and are are not going to survive, that perhaps they will look at the actual determining factors for whether someone is a in this state that you've you just talked about or not can we see more tests and, you know, and how, how good are we actually at predicting the outcomes of patients yeah yeah that's uh, that's a very important issue it's uh, it's really the the focus of my most of my my research is to improve the methods for prognostication and we are not very good currently. We recently did an evaluation of the European guidelines for prognostication. And these guidelines states that you, you need information from several sources to be certain. And there is an algorithm that you would follow where you have all these different methods incorporated. 
And we tested in a very large group of patients how good the algorithm was. And, and the specificity of the algorithm, the ability of this algorithm to, to say certainly that you would have a poor outcome, that was very good. So it's very safe. It did not uh, identify any patients who did not ultimately have a poor outcome. But on the other hand, the sensitivity, the, the capa- capacity to to detect patients with a poor outcome was not very good, only 40% approximately. So many patients will be in the gray zone. Also, when we have done the EEG and, and uh, CT scan and neurological examination, we will still be uncertain in a large fraction of patients. What we would typically do is to wait another day or maybe two days and if the patient doesn't wake up, many physicians would just decide to withdraw intensive care in those patients. And, and that wouldn't be very safe, I would say. So, so we still need to improve these methods a lot. And there are a lot of new methods coming up and a lot of improvements coming up. And I think uh, also the fact that organ donation is becoming more common will improve the diagnostics. It will be more focused on having very safe methods uh, to be able to predict. Uh, I, I do hope so, as, as obviously there's going to, well, in England anyway, there's going to be more people who are organ, organ donating and we, we really want to be sure that they are in the right state to be able to do so, don't we, as a society in general? Yeah, it's very important for the trust uh, the trust in the society to know that everything is done with very safe methods and no mistakes. If there suddenly would be mistakes in this this area, it would I think it would would people would lose trust in organ donation. I wouldn't dare to become voluntary organ donors or having those cards or registers if they didn't trust the system. So. If a country practices withdrawing of life-sustaining therapies after however number of weeks, what's the sort of minimum that we might see in in a European country like Sweden or Britain on that? Typically, withdrawal of care would occur on day four or day five after the cardiac arrest. And, but what's the, what's the longest that you've you've seen? Because I've, I've seen in the group the pe- patients say they were in a coma for uh, the, the majority of patients in a coma are, are generally a very short time, from a few days maybe up to a week. But I've seen other people who have been in a coma for uh, several weeks, even up to a month. I think there was one person. It happens. It's not common, but that may be a patient who are kept sedated for a reason. As I told you, for example, for respiratory reasons, if it's the brain injury that causes the coma, it's very uncommon that you stay comatose for three to four weeks. But maybe you have, for example, epileptic activity in in your brain so that you will be sedated for that reason uh, as well. And of course, we have those outliers who are comatose for three or four weeks, but it's it's not many percent of all the patients in the ICU with cardiac arrest. So where withdrawal of life-saving therapies is routinely practiced, I've read that 
generally we don't have that many people with uh, a severe brain injury and most of us are, are classed as having a good outcome i and i've seen the or i've quoted before on this podcast the cerebral performance category where one or two would that be true and what does that one or two mean and what is good yeah so a good outcome is considered a, a cerebral performance category one or two, and in category one, you may have some minimal neurological problems, some minimal brain injury, but you should be able to return to work, to your regular work. And and if you have a category two, you have a moderate uh, brain injury, and you should be able to work in a sheltered environment. So you could have a adjusted work situation, adjusted due to your problems with for example, memory or or attention or you have a lot of fatigue and you have difficulties uh, performing certain tasks, that would still be considered a good outcome, although you have a lot of problems, of course. But you are able to to take care of your your daily activities. So you could eat and you could dress yourself and you could go to the bathroom and you could even travel around in the community by yourself. But if you are on the other side, if you have a poor outcome and you have category three, CPC three, cerebral performance category three, that's a severe brain injury. And a patient in a CPC three is somebody who needs somebody else to take care of them on a daily basis for their daily activities. Often they would still be up and walking because you don't have a lot of problems with your motor functions. You may have some twitching still or or some slight coordination problems, but typically you would be up and walking, but you would have a lot of memory problems, a lot of personality change. So you wouldn't be the same person and you wouldn't be able to do any kind of work. You would need a personal assistant during daytime or a nursing home. That would would basically be be the alternatives. And the CPC4 is this chronic vegetative or unconscious wakefulness syndrome, vegetative state, where you are just lying in the bed and you're not able to communicate with anybody. And if, you, if we look at countries where they don't withdraw life-sustaining therapy, most of those with a poor outcome are actually in, this, in the CPC4 category. And there are not so many with the, with the up-and-walking uh, severe brain injury, that type of, of situation. What about the patients who are, are, have a one or two are classed as good, but as you mentioned, they quite often may have additional problems you know they may go on unaddressed how can we resolve that is is the tag of having a good outcome not very helpful in these cases because you know you may have memory problems you may have fatigue problems you may be emotionally changed or personality i've seen it in lots and lots of cases but we're still classed as a good is the cpc scale fit for purpose in in cases like us (laughs) Well, I think it's fit if you're if we are if we are relating it to prognostication in the ICU where we are deciding whether to prolong intensive care 
or simply stop intensive care and, and letting the patient die. I think it's very fit to discuss in terms of good and poor outcome, but that does not exclude that those with a good outcome will have a lot of problems that we need to deal with. Of course, we need to deal with these problems, but we also know from large investigations that their quality of life is good. So if you have a good outcome after cardiac arrest, if you survive cardiac arrest in a country uh, like like Britain, uh, you will very probably consider your quality of life being good afterwards, if we ask you. And that's the most important uh, thing, I think, that you have a good quality of life. But you you have a lot of problems, and we know that these problems are not captured in the usual follow-up of the cardiac arrest, only in places where they have organized also a neurological follow-up of the brain injury problems, they will capture these these patients. Otherwise, you will have a follow-up with your cardiologist and he will be looking at your heart and be very happy about your heart, but not really be able to, to look at your brain injury problems. And we don't really, as you say, have any sort of robust guidelines about that at the moment? No, we're just in the developing phase for that. In the last part of the European Guidelines 2015, there were some advice on follow-up. And in this new guidelines, for which was supposed to, to be out this year but will be postponed to next year, there will be more extensive guidelines on follow-up of cognitive problems after cardiac arrest. So it is developing. And in the, in the future, I'm sure that this will be a natural part that we combine the neurological and the cardiological follow-up of cardiac arrest patients. Well, that's good to hear so that we can capture some of those problems that, you know, people go on with with their memory and uh, fatigue and what have you, whether there's anything, you know, you can do about them directly or whether it's just a case of having interventions so that people learn how to to manage it or to, to even learn why why it's been caused. I quite often see people who perhaps put down some of the symptoms that they've uh, experienced down to just medications and things like that. Perhaps some of them are, but I guess we don't know 100%. One one, uh, thing that I often notice when I meet patients after cardiac arrest is that they are are worried that they got dementia. And and just, just by assuring them that this is not dementia, this is due to your cardiac arrest and, and it won't get worse. It will gradually get better because you will adjust and you will find ways to go around it. That that's I think just just assuring them that is is helpful because they are so worried that they, they are becoming demented. That thought has crossed my mind. Yeah. And also it's a, t- a totally different subject, but does it put you more likely to get dementia when you're older no not as we know at least but i I have to say i don't think there's been any there has not been any studies on that so i think we're probably coming to the end of my questions on this so do you think you could just sort of um sum up where we are with prognostication and just to sort of put lay people in the picture and also where perhaps you think we may be going with it what tools that you may see that we we have in the next five or ten years? 
Yes, to, to, to try to make it brief, I would say that brain injury after cardiac arrest is very, very usual for patients who are treated in the ICU after resuscitation. And approximately half of the patients will die. Most of these patients will die after a decision to withdraw intensive care because we have diagnosed a very severe brain injury that is not compatible with a good outcome. And we have different methods to look at the brain and to diagnose this brain injury. And these methods are very much in in development and we have new blood samples, new ways to look at the EEG and new imaging methods coming up, which will make it even better. But already the methods that we have today are very safe and the guidelines that we have are very safe. So when we are sure that the prognosis is poor, it is reliably poor. Yes, I I think I would frame it that way. I, I would also like to say that these decisions are necessary uh, to make because if we don't make them, if we would just be reluctant to make decisions to withdraw intensive care, we would face a situation where, where very many patients, a very large fraction of the patient, become severely survive with very severe brain injury in, in nursing homes. And that's a very tragic outcome of cardiac arrest that we most of us want to certainly want to avoid. Indeed, indeed. Yes, uh, thank you for summing it up like that. It sort of puts it very clear on this sort of very difficult and sensitive subject, really. I guess it's very difficult for you guys doing that, making those decisions day in, day out, and dealing with the, the relatives or families where you have to withdraw therapies. But when patients come through it and they're 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 back into a normal life again it must be very rewarding for for you yes it is it is indeed and but i also think that these situations where where we have a tragic outcome where the outcome is poor still meeting the relatives and discussing with the relatives around the evidence and all the different methods that we have used i think it's also rewarding because it's, uh, I mean, it's relatives who are in a, in a struggling with a difficult situation, and uh, we are making very difficult decisions. But on the other hand, it's very, very important discussions. And for me, it's revo- rewarding to be able to be there and to share uh, their agony and to try to give comfort anyhow. And, and some of the things we could always comfort them is that for this this loved one who have a severe brain injury, they have not suffered. There is no suffering involved in it. And when we decide to to stop the intensive care, it will be very calm, it will be very peaceful. It will not be a situation of pain or struggling. So in that sense, it's a, it's a good way of dying. I think that's a great way to end this episode. So Thank you very much again for your time, Tobias, and I'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. This concludes this episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast, and I'd love to know what you think. And you can do that via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the website suddencardiacarrestuk.org. And you can find us by Googling Sudden Cardiac Arrest UK 
or the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast. If you have found value in this or other episodes, please help spread the word by leaving a review on your podcast provider, such as Apple or wherever is convenient. And don't forget, if you want to know more about Life After Cardiac Arrest, check out our books, Life After Cardiac Arrest, on Amazon. Make sure you click subscribe and I'll speak to you next time.